Read with me if you would. Romans 6, 5 through 14. God's word. Paul says this. For if we have been united with Christ in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of death might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also yourselves Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members, in other words, your physical parts of your body, your members to God, as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have given us in your sovereignty, in your good plan, your word, which nourishes our life and spurs us on to a life of godliness. Lord, this morning as we talk about death to self, to sin, it's the way we become more like you, Jesus. The way that we are sanctified or become more holy. So by continually dying to self. As we talk about this this morning, we're going to get into some stuff, Lord. About our lives and things that might make us blush. Things that are hard because they're so much a part of who we are. Lord, help us be willing to listen to what you want to say to us today, Lord. Because you mean it for our good. You always mean it for our good. So we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, one of my great vices, indulgences, if you will, are uh, Hollywood comedies that sometimes teeter on, what's the word? Appropriateness, if you will. All right? I sometimes enjoy comedies of this ilk. All right? This is a confession I'm making before you today. I want to be honest with my congregation, with my people, just as you are with me. And one of these uh, movies is the very first Austin Powers movie, all right? Which is, Austin Powers is a sort of spoof on the older James Bond movies, all right? If you don't know this, Austin Powers, he's a, he's a British spy from the 1960s who is sort of characterized by, free love, baby, yeah, that's what he always said, Okay. Really debated doing that accent. And he's trying in this movie to finally live, though, in a monogamous relationship. Good for him, right? That's what you get with Hollywood. Uh, it's like the small victory. He's trying to live in a monogamous relationship, but his enemy, Dr. Evil, knowing this, tries to kill him by tempting him out of this monogamous relationship. Specifically, he traps him in a room with... Women in their pajamas. But in reality, so you don't know this, but in reality, these women are really 
militant robots. All right, and that's the brilliancy of this plot. Austin Powers doesn't know this. All right, so he has to somehow get out of the situation. It's very complex. All right, so they begin to flirt with Powers. All right, he tries his best to resist the temptation. And the only way to resist the temptation is replacing his normal, let's be honest, lustful thoughts and images with some other image. So over and over, he says to himself, Margaret Thatcher on a cold night. Margaret Thatcher on a cold night. Margaret Thatcher on a cold night. (laughs) Now, while slightly flawed... And really rather, <laughs> rather slightly sad for Margaret Thatcher, right? Basically, this is a good strategy for killing sin, killing temptation. So, continuing the sermon from last week in a nutshell. Continuing the sermon in a nutshell from last week. When putting sin to death, don't resist, replace uh, last week, we looked at verses 5 through 11, of Romans 6, and basically Paul gave us there sort of a preventive strategy for keeping sin dead, right? It was, it's all about his battle for the mind. Paul is saying, to remain dead to sin, you can't resist lies and negative thinking. You have to replace it with a truth. But here's the problem with this. We couldn't get to this last week, so we're continuing it this week. And you can go back last week and listen to the sermon. It's kind of a two-part deal. We know our lives bear witness to the fact that sometimes we need more than prevention. Sometimes we need to do more than replace lies with truth. We mess up. Prevention only goes so far because lies turn into temptation. Temptation turns into sin. And sin can turn into these full-blown seasons and times of idolatry, even as Christians. At these times, Paul says, you and I need to do more than prevent. We need to take action. And so he says, do not let sin, if you got the NIV, it's actually a better translation here, do not let sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies. To make you obey their passions. Do not, and you see these action words. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. We've got to do more than prevent. Sometimes we have to take action to kill things that have taken over our lives. So we are dead to sin, as Paul said last week. But we are becoming dead to sin. Paul reminds us that there is a time to kill. There is a time to kill. Verses 12 through 14. Because sin, as we know, can rear its ugly head. And try to once again, as it says in verse 12, reign in our mortal bodies. Do not let it happen. When it does, you've got to kill it. Elsewhere, we see Paul say it more emphatically. Colossians 3.5, he says this, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. 
sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Put it to death. But the question we're going to examine for the most of our time this morning is how do you do this? How do you kill sin which, as it says in Hebrews 12, clings so closely to our lives? It's hard to slough it off. A, we have to understand idolatry. B, we have to identify our idol. C, we have to replace our idol. Alright, so first, we're going to look at A, understanding idolatry. I'm going to revisit this Colossians verse here for a moment. Colossians 3, 5. Puts, putting sin to death. Besides death, there is another phrase here that relates to our passage in Romans 6 this morning. So you see how it relates to Romans 6, death. But there's another word here that relates to Romans 6. Namely, passions. Essentially, Paul here in Colossians 3 repeats that idea twice. He says passions, or, and then he says evil desires. In Romans 6, going back to that, he says, Do not let sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its, what? Its passions. Now, I want to talk about passions here for a moment. The Greek word for passion is thumos. And even used biblically though, desires, passions can be good as they relate to the body. All right? A body's passion can also be a godly passion. Some examples. Eating. Sleeping. Things God designed us for. Exercising and sport, right? Taking care of one's yard or house or taking care of animals. Using our hands to build, to construct, to create as an art. To use the members of our body to serve others. Godly passions. The problem is that both in, the, in Colossians 3.5 and in our passage this morning, Paul uses not thumos, passion, but epithumos. Epi is a preposition, a strong preposition meaning over. In other words, epithumos, an over passion. See, idolatry rarely consists of being passionate about something evil or inherently bad. It's taking a good passion and making it into an ultimate passion. The overpassion starts to rule all other passions. Overpassions begin to make decisions for you. You order your life around it. And eventually overpassions begin to overpower. And because they are overpassions, you can't simply try your best to resist. You can't keep resisting your master. You have to kill and replace him. But before we get that far, we must first be identify the idol. Now this is so hard because our idols are so much a part of who we are. Now speaking of uh, the idolatry of self that he will call he calls the veil separating us from God. One of my favorite authors and longtime pastors, A.W. Tozer, said this in his book, Pursuit of God. The veil, the idol of self, is woven of the fine threads of the self-life, he says. The hyphenated sins of the human spirit, they are not something we do, they are something we are. 
And therein lies both their subtlety and their power. Let us remember that when we talk of rending the veil, in other words, when we talk of dying to self, idolatry of self, we are speaking in a figure. And the thought of it is almost poetical, almost pleasant. But in actuality, there is nothing pleasant about it. In human experience, that veil is made of living spiritual tissue. It is composed of the sentient, quivering stuff of which our whole beings consist. And to touch it is to touch us where we feel pain. To tear it away is to injure us, to hurt us, and make us bleed. To say otherwise is to make the cross no cross, and death no death at all. It is never fun to die. To rip through the dear and tender stuff of which life is made can never be anything but deeply painful. Yet that is what the cross did to Jesus. It is what the cross would do to every man to set him free. For me, friends, for me, that idol of self, that veil that clings so closely, for me, it is me time. God designed us for rest. All right? He gave us the Sabbath, or the Lord's Day, for rest. But when I make rest my ultimate passion, and I have children, it's a big passion of mine, I just want rest. All right? When I make it my ultimate passion, I try to find ways, do you ever do this? I try to find ways to get it. I angle, right? I angle so I can find ways to make it happen in my life. And I know, I know, man, it really needs to be taken out back and shot, right? When I start bargaining, right? When I start saying, well, let me help you with this. And in exchange, perhaps you could do something for me. Me time, right? All right that's what I'm doing this in order to secure this thing I have made into an ultimate passion in my life. Brothers and sisters, it is so hard to identify for me because it is part of who I am. I love it. It is the sentient, quivering stuff of which my whole being exists. I think this is why Paul, in verse 6, calls it the body of sin. If you look in verse 6, because sin clings so closely to our very flesh and like our very flesh. Right? So closely. And it's also hard to identify right, this idol that clings so closely because we have the motive, I know I have the motive, of not wanting to find it lest God challenge me to kill it. I don't want that to happen. To rip through the tender stuff of which life is made can never be anything but deeply painful. As Tozer says, it's going to hurt. Honestly identifying an idol in your life is one of the most courageous acts of obedience you can do as a Christian. Because it's going to be so painful and you know it. If God should call you to say, you know what, you've got to kill it. You've got to kill it. So it is a courageous act to identify this in your life. What is the overpassion in your life? 
What is an overpassion in your life? Especially as it relates to the body, as Paul talks about here. Eating. Is it eating as it turns into self-comfort? Serving others turns into a savior complex. Right? Only I can save them. And it makes me feel good about myself. Maybe it's taking care of things, taking care even of animals, to the neglect of people who are made in God's image. I know there's a marathon coming up next week. Uh, there's something even going on this morning as Alan's ran over someone on the way in here. Physical training, good, but it can turn into avoiding people, canceling on people, even not going to church consistently. While Scripture tells us of the need to make regular fellowship in His church a habit in our lives. Not that missing one week of church is bad. I'm not saying that. I'm not going there. And this is actually an important point. Do you see this? I cannot... Even as your, your pastor, with this telephone line to Jesus, right, apparently. I cannot identify this overpassion in your life, okay? People can come to you, and I could come to you and maybe question you. And yeah, we should listen to that. You know, maybe this is an overpassion in your life. But I can't identify it concretely for you. That's between you and Jesus. Only He can show you that. Does that make sense? When you do identify it, when you do identify that overpassion, write it down and tell someone. Writing stuff down makes our thoughts, convictions, our plan of action more concrete and ultimately then more doable. And telling others holds us accountable. Telling someone else holds us accountable. We have to understand idolatry. We have to identify the idol. Finally, you have to replace the idol. If you try to kill the thing, but don't replace it with something greater, it'll just come back. It'll just come back from the dead. Just like a zombie. Right? I've come to take over your life again. (laughs) I'm just really excited, by the way, about the Cayman zombie movie. You've seen this, right? This uh, B movie that was filmed here in Cayman. It's going to be coming out in theater soon. Love it. Anyway, it will just come back if you don't kill it because it's an overpassion and because the idol has been part of who you are for so long. Think about it. How many persons do you know, do you really know, who quit an addictive habit cold turkey? So rarely happens. It's why we have plans, pills, and patches. Because we need replacements. My sister was telling me the other day about some friends of hers who were going out for dinner with kids at a fancy restaurant. And so they got out, dressed up really nice, got the knots out of the kids' hair, right? Made them wear shirts with buttons on them. Special occasion. And the littlest of them, I think she was uh, four, ordered from the kids' menu. But all she wanted was french fries. All she wanted was the fries. And who can blame her? And she kept eating till she gave her parents that look. Parents, you know that look. It's a look that only parents know. It's that pause where you know that a technicolor yawn is coming. <laughs> right, one second later, she threw up those fries. Just ralph them everywhere. I like to call it the technicolor yawn. 
Now, <laughs> that's disgusting, I know. While everyone was uh, cleaning up around her, they forgot one important detail. While the, the mater d's and the parents were cleaning up, they didn't replace the plate of uneaten fries. So, what do you think she immediately started shoveling into her mouth? <laughs> yep, like a cartoon character. I mean, it was like stinking Garfield with lasagna. And this is why many Christians end up like a dog returning to his vomit. Because they don't replace. Jesus tells a bizarre story, kind of a strange story that illustrates this point. Perhaps you've heard it before. It comes from the Gospel of Luke chapter 11, verse 23 through 26. He says, Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. In other words, like through deserts seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of the person is worse than the first. This is a sort of parable Jesus tells to point out that you can't just get rid of things without replacing them with something greater. That's the context, especially if you read verse 23. In fact, Jesus says, if you don't replace it, that old thing will come back, that old idol will come back, grow stronger and get worse. Do not resist. Replace. There is an expulsive power in a new affection. That affection is God himself. Verse 13 says, Present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. He is life. And your members to God, and there's your physical parts of your body to God, as instruments for righteousness. Sometimes, replacing means replacing the aim of our bodily passions. So for instance, for eating... To give thanks as you eat each bite. And as you give thanks to him who's given you this food, believe me, it'll, get, it'll be hard to legitimately thank him when you pass the point of overeating. I learned this while celebrating Thanksgiving this past week on my fourth piece of pecan pie. Right after piece three, it started to get hard to say, thank you, Lord. Serving others, will you point them to self or from the beginning? Point them to the cross of Christ who can alone ultimately help them. Point to me, how I can help. Point to Christ who can ultimately help. Exercise and sport. Have you guys ever seen the movie Chariots of Fire? All right, a number of us have. You remember Eric Liddell then, the Scottish runner who despite his fame allows no overpassion to triumph his passion for God. So he continues to run and feel God's pleasure in doing so. And he uses these opportunities to share the gospel. All the while, he grapples with making sure that his passion doesn't become an overpassion. Doesn't overshadow his passion for Jesus. He must always be grappling and reevaluating that passion. What a great point for us. You must constantly be grappling and reevaluating, Lord, has this become an overpassion in my life? If I can't say to God, Lord, I am willing to give this up for a season or for good, then I know it's become an overpassion. 
You see that? But should he ask you to replace the whole darn passion, it is only to receive more of himself. Only to receive more of himself. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 11, that we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal bodies. His life. I'm talking Jesus of Nazareth. His life can be revealed in our mortal bodies just by dying to self. His life, pulsating throughout all of who you are, can become the new affection and replace the idol. The revealing of Christ in me to a dying world can become my new tonic, my new obsession. When I die, it hurts. But dying to my life means dying to small appetites. The occasional craving for applause and self-congratulation. A hunger pang for companionship. And sporadically licking my lips for God to do that. You know, some cool things around me. But when my life is replaced by the ever-pursuing passion of his life, my hunger is enlarged to a God-sized appetite. A God-sized appetite. Moving mountains. By faith, doing even greater things than these. Watching people pass from death to life. The over, ever-present joy of fellowship with God, the Holy Spirit inside of me. Just speaking one of his words, and boom, a heart has changed. A number of years ago, a friend of a friend, by the way, I like to tell friend of the friend stories because I never get in trouble. I don't get the uh, email that says, hey, yeah, really wish you wouldn't have told that story about me. <laughs> a friend of a friend was a pastor who moved to Texas, a city in Texas. Some weeks after he arrived, he had occasion to ride the bus from his home to the downtown area. When he sat down, he discovered that the driver had accidentally given him 50 cents too much change. So he sat down considering what to do. He, his first thought was, you know, what's the big deal? Does God really care about these little things like this? Besides, I'm a pastor. I deserve a break. Thinking about rightness, he was about to walk off the bus with 50 cents in his pocket when he remembered that through the cross, Jesus gave him his only rightness, i.e. his righteousness. The only thing right about him, in fact, is Jesus. Excited by the truth that through the credit of Christ's righteousness, that Christ not only forgave him, but credited him with his righteousness. Excited by this truth, he realized there couldn't be a richer man in the world than himself. With this thought, he stepped back up the bus stairs and handed the driver 50 cents. Here, he said, you accidentally gave me too much change. The driver replied, aren't you the new pastor in town? You know, I've been thinking about going to church somewhere. And I just wanted to see what you would do if I gave you 50 cents too much change. When he stepped off the bus, he literally grabbed the nearest light pole, held on and said, Oh my God, I almost sold your son for 50 cents. <laughs> the important part to me of this story, though, for us this morning, 
It wasn't enough for him to die to self, to not steal. He had to recall the wealth he had in Jesus. The great treasure he had in Jesus. You see, replacing an old idol with a new affection is the only way to forever bury that idol. I want to leave us with a challenge and end with this. I don't want to leave anyone out, but I want to recognize that most of us here are expatriates. And I want to end by asking those of us who chose to move here a question. Why did you move to Cayman? Wasn't at least part of the reason, or perhaps the whole reason, a fresh start? To have a fresh start? How's that working out for you? Really, how's that working out for you? Did the fresh start turn into a new opportunity to indulge in an old life with a little less judgment and a little more secretive, perhaps? Or maybe part of you truly desires to start a new life, the new life you intended. If so, but it hasn't worked out, the Holy Spirit wants to help. He desires to put to death old idols by replacing them with a new affection himself. Lord Jesus, uh, I'm actually so thankful actually spending two weeks talking about death. I think sometimes we try to learn too much at the same time. Take another week to talk about replacing, replacing lies with new thoughts, with new truths, truths from Scripture, replacing old idols with a new affection. It is good for us to meditate on this. God, it is good because you want to radically show yourselves through our mortal bodies. These mortal passions, which are good, either need to be done for you, Lord for your purposes in thanksgiving, or they need to be killed, totally killed off, and replaced by this new passion, this new thumos, this new affection in Jesus. God, I pray that you wouldn't let us walk away from here, just, uh, I guess I should do better, and that's our plan. Or, yeah, I do struggle with that, but doesn't everyone struggle? Lord, help us cry out to you, plead to you, Help us kill these old idols and replace them with a new affection. Help us walk out of here writing down our idols and telling people what they are. Committing ourselves to love you above all passions. You are our overpassion, Lord. Help us so that might become a reality in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.